Uh, go ahead and get a worksheet and uh, a pen and be ready. And I want your interaction this evening. And uh, we're going to go through a lot of material uh, as we look at just one chapter. But I think it will be a challenge and a help. Uh, we've been studying through the book of Nehemiah for some time. And we pick up our study, uh, as you notice there, in Nehemiah chapter 5. Uh, tonight. Hey, brother. Hey. Nehemiah chapter 5. You get here late, you go in the front row. That's what it looks like. You get, you, you get, you get spit on, don't you? So, uh, Nehemiah chapter 5, and uh, we'll get started. Here's what I want you to do to get started tonight. Uh, and there should be a Bible around you, somewhere if you need one to underneath your seat. You might need a Bible. We got. Toby, can you see there's some more Bibles there? I think there are all kinds of Bibles. I have one, thanks. Okay, anybody see the Bible? All right. Go ahead and do this. I want you to read. On your handout there, on your learner guide, there is an article, a piece I want you to read, and there are three questions that I want you just to, to read that article and, and jot down uh, some quick answers to it, and we're going to discuss it in a moment. So go ahead and read that first paragraph, and i answer those uh, three questions real quick. Most clients been at church all night, you know that? <laughs> we'll go ahead and start reading through that, and then we'll look at those questions together. Scores of worshipers were hurt in a brawl during Sunday worship at a Kenyan church, local newspapers reported. The church had become divided into two rival congregations by a dispute over its management decisions after church elders dismissed some church leaders on charges of financial irregularity. The Kenyan Times said it took the intervention of police to stop part of the congregation from strangling a pastoral staff member appointed to take care of running the church located in the capital city of Nairobi. The People newspaper said members of the congregation turned their backs on the pulpit when the pastor attempted to lead in worship. For over four hours, many in the congregation booed, insulted, and heckled the pastor, the newspaper said. Scores of faithful uh, were left seriously injured when a free-for-all fist fight erupted. Now, when you read that, what were your initial thoughts? And you all could just talk out tonight. What were your initial thoughts when you read that? Okay, sad. Yeah, that's a that's a, a prominent thought for sure. Tragic. Tragic. How could something like that happen? How could that take place? Not a good Christian No, absolutely not. Especially when the police are called in and newspapers and restraining people from strangling the pastor and. Um, well, listen, what do you think really caused this to happen? I mean, behind the financial irregularity, behind the elders' decisions and so forth, what do you think really happened that would lead a church to this point 
where they would reach, you know, this low in the church's life. All right, taking their eyes off Jesus. Good. All right. The enemy was having a heyday for sure. All right. Yeah, everybody wanting their own way. Exactly. Yeah, probably, you know, obviously different groups formed, rival congregations. That's tragic in itself when you have that. Um, any other thoughts along that? Sin? Yeah. Now, here's the clincher question. Do you ever think this could happen here at Red Hill Baptist Church? Yes. Okay. All right. How many say yes? All right. How many say no? How many are hesitant to say anything? Because you just, you hate, that, you don't want to think about that, do you? That's something you don't want to think about. Okay. If yes is the answer, how could it happen? Why could it happen here at our church? the same nature as they have, but it's just maybe circumstances haven't been right for two to, to erupt. Exactly. I mean, you hope it never does, but to say never, it will never happen, I think would be... Yeah, the Bible says what? The hen to think if he standeth, take heed lest he fall. And for us, if we puff ourselves up in pride and say, look, no, that can never happen here, that will never take place here, we're actually foolish in saying that. We know that we can get in the flesh, I call it getting in the flesh. You ever get in the flesh, you know, you get, you know, instead of being spirit controlled, you want to just, you know, let the old man take over and, and take control. And it doesn't take a lot for an explosive situation to just really do a lot of damage, does it? And uh, sad to say, the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, the testimony of the church, the testimony of these believers was obviously terribly marred. I mean, when it comes to the point where, for, and by the way, for four hours, Many in the congregation booed, insulted, and heckled the pastor. I wonder what kind of message the pastor was preaching uh, for four hours, to say the least. Yeah, I think I think that's time to wave the white flag, pray, and go home. Those... We don't know what kind of a church that was. It was a Kenyan church. Yeah, and we don't know what what style church or what denomination. Yeah, and the Southern Baptist church would probably be worse. They probably would have pulled out guns and knives. <laughs> Yeah, you never know. I mean, I know people are, you know, packing heat and all kinds of stuff when they come to church, right? But anyway. There's some churches that let the preacher and one or two others just run the whole thing. True. Yeah, there are dictatorships. And that usually gets into a problem. Yeah, it sure does. You've seen that right up here in Charlotte. Yeah, you're right. Well, here's what we're going to do. That was just to set the stage for what we're going to read about here in Nehemiah chapter 5. Because as we pick up our study tonight, we're going to find that Nehemiah is still facing opposition. Now, opposition takes on many different forms. It can be uh, literal threats. It can be different things. But perhaps as Nehemiah is living here, he might have thought that's all he was going to face. I'll put a chart there in your learner guide if you look at that with me real quick. And I want you to notice chapters 4, 5, and 6 all deal with opposition. We've already studied chapter 4. Let's go back and review. Notice that we have listed here three columns, the resistance, Nehemiah's response, and the reference. Okay, so chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, those lovely gentlemen, they angrily ridiculed Nehemiah. Nehemiah responded to them in this way. He and the people prayed and renewed their commitment to the work. Then in chapter 4, verses 7 and 9, Sanballat, Tobiah, and a coalition of Arabs, Ammonites, Ashdodites threatened an attack. Nehemiah and the people prayed and appointed an around-the-clock guard. 
Remember, they were, they were kind of building with one hand and holding a spear or sword. The other, building and battling here, if you will, or prepared to battle. Then in the end of chapter 4, verses 10 through 23, the Israelites become discouraged and fearful. And Nehemiah speaks words of reassurance and armed all the workers. He armed the workers. Imagine that to carry on the work here. Now, in chapter 5, we're going to study tonight. We notice that some of the Jewish officials took advantage of the poor by charging exorbitant interest rates and seizing their property. And we're going to see this evening that Nehemiah rebuked these opportunists and ordered them to return the seized assets. But then notice chapter 6. Chapter 6 is also filled with opposition. Uh, we'll study it probably next time. But here you have Sanballat and Tobiah and now Geshem tried to distract Nehemiah with offers to meet and talk. Let's just get together and talk. And Nehemiah refused the offers and kept his focus on the goal of finishing the walls. Later on in chapter 6, Sanballat spread slanderous reports that Nehemiah intended to make himself a king. And Nehemiah denied the accusation and prayed for strength. And then at the end of chapter 6, uh, verses 10 through 14, uh, Shemaiah, the subordinate of Tobiah, and Sanballat tried to convince Nehemiah to be a coward and break God's law by hiding in the temple. And we find that Nehemiah discerned the trick and prayed for strength. And justice. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Opposition, 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 problem after problem after problem. But did you notice there that chapters four and chapter six dealt with opposition from outside? While our chapter tonight, chapter five, deals with opposition from within, from within their own people. Now, here's the question. Why all the opposition? Why all the problems? Why all the headaches? Well, we know. Tonight, what? Our adversary hates the work of God. Our adversary is just that. He is our adversary. J. Bernie McGee, I put a quote on your handout there. I think it's on page two. I want you to notice that quote. In the history of the church, we have seen that when the devil could not destroy the church by persecution, the next thing he did was what? Join it. Now, think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. If he can't get to him from the outside... He'll say, well, I'll begin working on the inside. And what, what do we have here in this opposition tonight in chapter 5? We have opposition from within. Now, what, look at that question there. Which kind of opposition do you think is the most difficult to deal with? Opposition from the outside or opposition from the inside? Inside. Why do you say inside? Yeah, the, they're the people you trust the most. Yeah, okay. Other thoughts? Well, if, if you're in the family of God, especially if you're believers, I mean, you're talking about uh, a conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Talking about conflict within family. Let me ask you something. Do families ever have conflict? Uh-huh. Don't, don't testify or anything. Just, uh, uh, yeah, there's problems there, aren't there? Now, I want to point out to you Satan's strategy against the work and workers of God. There's three main things that we find here, and you've got a place to fill them in on your worksheet there. We're we're working our way to this passage. We're kind of setting the stage here tonight. Uh, First of all, he attempts to discourage the believer. He attempts to discourage the believer. Satan, our adversary, wants to discourage you. Now, let me ask you something. Discouragement can come from many different forms, can it? It can come from persecution. It can come from intimidation, uh, an insurmountable workload, uh, perhaps even a thorn in the flesh. You know, Paul dealt with a thorn in the flesh. Uh, Listen to what it says in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
and verse number 7. It says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now, what happens when a person becomes discouraged, especially a believer in the work of God? I mean, this person's laboring along for the Lord. Uh, maybe they're teaching a Sunday school class. Maybe they're serving as a deacon. Maybe they're a choir member. Maybe they're working in, in some other area of the ministry. Maybe they're just trying to, to live a good, clean Christian life and be a good witness at work, but they become discouraged. What happens to that person? You get burnt out on what you're doing. All right, you can get burnt out on what you're doing. Okay, so the focus goes from God to an inward focus, a feeling of failure. A feeling of inadequacy. I mean, we know we're not adequate without the Lord's help, but I mean, we understand what we're saying here. In other words, you begin to go down, down, down. You begin, many times, to do something that starts with a cue. You begin to quit. You begin to give up. All right? Discouragement. Don't answer aloud, but in your own heart and mind, have you ever dealt with discouragement? I mean, I think most people, if they were honest, would say, yeah, I've, I've dealt with discouragement before. You've had discouraging situations. Our enemy loves to discourage. The second thing he loves to do is he attempts to deceive the believer. He attempts to deceive the believer. Now, this can come from different forms. There are many false teachers out today. And false teachers are teaching what? Things that are false. Things that are not true. Uh, a false teacher can even take the word of God and twist it and pervert it and change what God has written or, or rip verses out of context and teach things that are not true. Sometimes that Satan deceives the believer uh, through means of false teaching. And sometimes that also leads to uh, thinking unbiblically about things and even your own life. You don't think about things the way God says that they are. You think in a warped way. And our world is filled with false teachers. And those very same false teachers can also bring about discouragement. Listen, the health and wealth and prosperity preachers today, I mean, obviously you guys, I think the majority here, you don't have enough faith. You're not close enough to God because you're not rolling in money. And you're not, you didn't ride tonight in a Rolls Royce, I don't think, anybody here. I mean, you don't have enough faith. I mean, doesn't God want to bless you in that way? Don't He want you to prosper financially in all these areas? Or if you're sick, you don't have enough faith to be healed, right? I mean, because if you have enough faith and you can exercise your faith, God would cure that cancer and whatnot. Is it God's will that He cure every cancer here on this earth? No. Is it God's will that we all be filthy rich millionaires? No. But the false teachers convincing people, listen... And God wants this and that. So you begin to think, well, I mean, I'm not what I ought to be. And, and we find all kinds of unbiblical thinking out there today. And then the third thing he loves to do is he loves and he attempts to divide believers. He attempts to divide believers. He wants to separate believers. He wants to drive a wedge in our relationship one with another. Look at that Wiersbe quote I put on your paper there. When the enemy fails in his attacks from the outside... He begins to attack from within, and one of his favorite weapons is what? Selfishness. Now read the rest of it. If he can get us thinking only about ourselves and what we want, then he will win the victory before we realize that he is even at work. Do you think there was some selfishness in that Kenyan church? Absolutely. 
It wasn't esteeming others better than ourselves. It was me and mine and let's get them boys. I mean, it was terrible. Selfishness. And that's exactly what we have going on here in Nehemiah 5 tonight. We find selfishness. We find sin. We find trouble from within. And when these things take root, they begin to wreck homes and families and our church and our lives. Just ask the Kenyan church members tonight exactly what was the fallout of all of that. Is their church better off for what happened there? Well, let's jump in here and look at this Nehemiah chapter 5 together tonight. We're going to notice, first of all, the people and their problems. You know, those two things go together, don't they? People and problems. Whether it's you, you yourself, and, and on personal problems or together. We can summarize their problems in three words. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves and some of our daughters have been brought, uh, brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. We can summarize their problems in three words. Those words are hunger, debt, and taxes. Hunger, debt, and taxes. As one author said, some things never change, do they? <laughs> hunger, debt, and taxes. And let's look at what's going on here with the hunger. Notice, first of all, they're under hunger. Look at verse number two. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. Now, there were apparently a group of people who didn't have a whole lot at all. They've been working on this wall. They've been diligently serving. And they have large families. Because it says what in verse number two? It says that our sons and our daughters are many. We've got large families. We have a lot of mouths to feed. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. We are hungry. Now, you ever been real hungry? I don't mean, you know, you didn't have a snack in the last ten minutes. I mean really hungry. You know, hunger is a powerful force, isn't it? And these people are hungry, and they're in a point of desperation, and they're greatly hungry. Now, the second problem we find here is the problem of debt. Uh, verses 3 and 4. There were also some, so the first group were those that didn't have pretty much anything, not even food. The second group, there were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. Uh, so here we have uh, people here in verse number three who they had land and they had vineyards and houses. So they had some stuff, but because of their needs, they had mortgaged their houses. They had put them out in order to buy food because we're told there what in verse number three, there's a famine going on. A lot of things were going against them. There was the famine. They were also busy working on this wall. Remember, they weren't going home. They were staying by the wall. They were trying to protect themselves, uh, continue building this wall. And so they weren't able to go out and work the fields and the crops and all this. There have been the influx of people into the, 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 the country. And so we have that these people, they're in debt. They've mortgaged their lands, their vineyards, their houses. They can't carry on. Then there's another group of people. And these people, verses 4 and 5. There were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. In other words, they couldn't pay their taxes. 
Ever how much the tax bill was, we don't know, but they could not pay it. So what did they do? It says that they borrowed money. Now I want you to notice just how bad this had gotten. Look at verse number 5. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. Now notice this next part. Indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be what? Slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. And it's not in our power to redeem them or to get them out of slavery. For other men have our lands and our vineyards. Apparently they had had lands and vineyards. They had gotten rid of those, mortgaged those. They got to the point, look around and say, hey, what do we have left? Hey, Junior, come here. Uh, and they literally are giving out their children to be slaves. Now, I would dare say that in our room here tonight, many people have faced hard times. But I doubt anybody ever put their child out as a slave or thought about uh, making their child a slave. Maybe thought about it once or twice, but you never did it, right? Now, this seems a bit strange to us, but we'll read about it in just a moment. As you can see, can we just say this about this group of people? Things are not going well. I mean, things are tough. Uh, Times are tight, downright hard. And there's a fourth group of people. So we've got this group that doesn't have much of anything, not even food. We have a second group who mortgaged their lands and their houses. And then we have this other group who obviously already done their lands and mortgages and also their taxes and their children are out in slavery now. And there's a fourth group. Look at verse number seven. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. There was a fourth group of people, and these were people who were well off. These were people who had food and money and things. You know what they were doing? They were exploiting their brothers, their fellow Jewish people who were having a hard time. They were taking advantage of them. They were not coming alongside to bless them. They were literally exploiting them. Now, look at that quote I put on your paper there. Uh, It says, from the perspective of the law... There were two problems here. Usury, which is lending money and charging interest, and slavery. Now, will somebody look up Deuteronomy 23, 19, and 20? Who will look up that one? Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 and 20. These references are right there on your paper. All right, uh, Debbie, if you'll take that one. Who will look up Exodus 22, 25? Exodus 22, 25. All right, Danielle. And who will look up Leviticus 25, 35 through 40? These are all the references listed there on your paper. Who will take Leviticus? All right, thank you, Miss Lynn. So two problems here. Lending money and charging interest okay, to their fellow Jews and slavery. Now I want you to notice the next sentence. It was not wrong for a Jewish person to lend money with interest to a non-Jewish person. Nor was it wrong for a Jewish person to lend money to a fellow Jew. However, the law did prohibit usury. It did prohibit interest. All right, who had Deuteronomy 23, 19-20? Would you read those, please? All right, thank you. Are you getting the idea here? For their, for their brothers... To the Jews, they could not they could not charge interest. Now, to the Gentiles or other people, it says that's fine, right? They could charge interest, but not to the Jews. Who had the next passage there? 
If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as an usurer, neither thou shalt lay upon him the usury. All right, thank you. So again, if you lend money to a fellow Jew, you don't charge them interest. In other words, you're not taking advantage of them because they are of your own nation. They're of your own people. Now notice what it says there in the next sentence. Interest rates were exorbitant and could easily lead a person to poverty and enslavement. Things don't change much, do they? We have a lot of people there today. This leads to the second problem. Now, this whole idea of, of being a slave, is that okay? Is that not okay? Notice what it says. According to the law of Moses, a Jewish person could hire himself out to, be some, uh, out to someone, but not as a slave. Who has the Leviticus 25 passage? Okay, please. Now, in case a countryman of yours becomes poor, and his means with regard to the falter, then you are to sustain him, like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest with him, but revere your God, that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest, nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with, with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave's service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Thank you. Did you catch the last part of that? The first part was kind of reiteration about the interest in not doing that. But the last part says, listen, if he's so poor that he needs to sell himself to you, do you treat him as a slave? No. How do you treat him? As a, as a hired servant. So you treat him as a hired servant. And it's a very interesting thing at the very end of it, till the year of Jubilee. Do you all remember about the, the year of Jubilee? Somebody help us here. Remember what the year of Jubilee was? Yeah, it's every, if I remember correctly, it's every 50 years. Uh, it was the year of Jubilee, and at that time, people went out. Uh, there was a seventh year celebration as well, but I should have looked that up again because I forgot to look that up. Uh, but the year of Jubilee, they would have been restored and set free, and they could have a fresh start. Remember, the land also returned to the people. Uh, if they, so God had it set up where it wasn't uh, where the, the rich could take, take advantage of the poor within the nation of Israel. Now, do you see how this selfishness and this greed impacted their lives? I want you to look at verse 1 again. It says in Nehemiah 5.1, There was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. Read that again. There was a great outcry of the people against and their wives. I almost said against their wives. That wouldn't be good, would it? There was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. They're not crying out against their enemies. They're not crying out against the enemies of God. They're crying out against their Jewish brethren. Their own brethren. Now, we might be sitting here thinking tonight, well, this is Old Testament. Now, this doesn't go on in the church. This doesn't happen in the church, but we know better, don't we? In fact, we find it went on in the early church. Put a marker there in Nehemiah and go to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And I want to point out a passage of Scripture there to you. Now, we just read in Nehemiah 5, there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. And I want you to notice Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. This is the early church here in the book of Acts. And in Acts 6, 1, here's what it says. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, so the church is growing, 
There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, who will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So we find here in the early church we have the the disagreement happening. There could have been a great division. There could have been great harm done to the church, right? But the apostles, very wisely, says, listen, we're going to give ourselves to prayer and the preaching of the word. Many believe this is the calling of the very first deacons. And these deacons are brought forth and they're laid hands on them. And they go forth serving the people, serving the tables. And so we have uh, the possibility of problems. The church is made up of people, right? Last time I checked, it's made up of people. Now listen, you see if you can fill out that blank. I think I put a blank on your sheet. As long as there are people, there will be what? Problems. Well, that sounded that sound kind of discouraging, didn't it? <laughs> problems. There will be. As long as there are people... There are problems. Now, why is this statement true? Why is that true? All right, that's that's the biggest thing is sin. All right, another big one we hit tonight also starts with us. The sin of selfishness. We get self-centered, self-focused. Now, I, I didn't like that hymn we sang yesterday. Uh, I don't like it when we put the offering taken up right there. I don't, I don't like that. We always took it up over here. Uh, you know, we didn't actually sing. You know, if we didn't sing doxology, I think I don't know if we have a riot or something, right? If we didn't sing doxology, you can only bring the offering forward to sing doxology, right? Uh oh. Now see what happens. If I left that out, you know, I've been tempted one Sunday not not to even have a bulletin. I think there would just be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know. <laughs> There was no bulletin. That would just be that would be the straw. Oh, when you're doing your month, <laughs> but we do get caught up in the way we like to do things and our preferences. But there's nothing the scripture says you have to send the doxology or you have to have a bulletin, right? They're great tools and we use them. Uh, but the thing about it is, we have to be very careful because we can get very self-centered, very selfish. Very much focused upon self. And we're not here focusing upon self. We're focusing upon the Lord and worshiping Him. Now, we know what problems are going on. The the problems here, uh, obviously, are hunger, debt, and taxes. Hunger, debt, and taxes. So how does Nehemiah handle these problems? Well, I believe there are some great principles that are laid out here in Nehemiah chapter 5 that will help us. And I I, I even put in parentheses, this is conflict resolution at its best. Uh, conflict resolution. You ever get in a conflict with someone, here are some good principles for you to use. Uh, take it from the life of Nehemiah and what's going on here. Let's begin reading there at verse number 6. And it says in verse number 6, here's how Nehemiah is going to handle these problems. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I want you to notice the very first principle is this. We need to take time to listen. We need to take time to listen. Take the time to listen. It says, when I heard the outcry of these words. 
Nehemiah took the time. Now, I don't believe Nehemiah knew what was all going on. I think this all came to a head and the people started crying out. That's what often happens. And sometimes when you're in leadership, we talk about everybody's in leadership one way, shape or another. Uh, even moms deal with conflict resolution on a daily basis, right, between children. Uh, some are teachers. Others are in other positions, maybe in church, whatever. You're a leader somewhere. There's conflicts. We need to take the time to listen. And that's a hard thing to do. Many times we'd rather talk or offer solutions. We need to understand the problem, don't we? We need to listen. I don't know about you, but listening is a skill you have to work at. And maybe you're a natural listener. Some people don't talk much, and they they really listen. And when they do speak, words of wisdom come out. And others are talkers and have a hard time listening. Um, So we need to take the time to listen and understand the problem. Uh, Not to jump to conclusions, not to make up our mind beforehand, but listen. And then I want you to notice, secondly, there from verse 6, we need to acknowledge and deal with our emotions. We need to acknowledge and deal with our emotions. This says that Nehemiah says here, I became a little upset. Is that what it says? I became very angry. Very angry. Now, should a godly man like Nehemiah ever become very angry? Now, see, we have mixed thoughts on this because part of us have been taught that a Christian never gets angry. But that's not right. Exactly. We know that we're not to get to the point of sinful anger. There is something called righteous indignation. There is something where we get angry because of what has happened. Not necessarily angry at a person as much as angry at what's going on. Listen, should we not be angry that women are being raped tonight? Shouldn't that, shouldn't that upset us? Shouldn't that make us angry at that? Now, are we, are, should we be angry and mad and, and hate those doing that? Ask it again. Should we hate those that are doing that? We hate their sin. We oftentimes don't separate that, do we? Now, that's why people go and blow up abortion clinics. Uh, does that make the, is that right thing to do? Is that what God wants you to do? No. We need to pray for those people. We need to stand up for those unborn lives, that kind of thing. Um, there are times we should get angry, but not sinful anger. The Lord Jesus displayed that, did he not? He displayed righteous indignation. Do you remember the story? They were making his father's house a place of, well, thieves, really. Buying and selling and and doing that. And Jesus very kindly said, could you guys take your stuff and move it out of here, right? What did Jesus do? He fashioned a whip. And he went in there and he drove them out of his father's house. Um, we get very timid. We, we're afraid to stand up for things. But I find Nehemiah became very angry. But I want you to notice something. He did not sin in this. He did not sin in this. Why do I say that? Because I want you to notice the next part, the third principle. We need to spend time thinking and praying. Look at verse number seven. After serious thought. Now listen, if you have a problem with anger, a lot of times you forget that thought part. Uh, we're kind of like a, a shotgun and we explode And it's too late. You cannot get that bullet back into the barrel. And that stuff spreads and destroys anything in its path. Uh, We would do a lot less harm if we have an anger problem to remove ourselves and pray and think. And if we have a sinful anger problem, take that to the Lord and let him deal with it in our lives. But notice Nehemiah, I believe, had a proper anger here, righteous indignation. But he does take time to, to think. And I believe also pray because he's a man of prayer over and over and over again. 
And so we need to take and spend the time thinking and praying. And then I want you to notice the fourth principle. We need to go to the source. Write that in there. We need to go to the source. That is the persons involved. Verse number seven. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. And so what do we have here? He didn't go talk about them to their uncle. He didn't go down to the store and chew the fat about them for three hours. What does it say? It says, I went to the kings and nobles. Many times our problem is we don't go to the source. We have a problem with somebody. There's an issue between somebody else and ourselves. We need to go to that person or that group and talk with them. Go to the source, those involved. And then we need to base our actions and beliefs on the word of God. Look at what he says in verse number nine. He brings them before the uh, great assembly there in verse number seven. Um, Verse number nine. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? He listened. He said, what you're doing is not good. Nehemiah was not afraid to say that's wrong. This is right. That's wrong. Now, what is he basing that on? We'd already seen what from from uh, the passage we read earlier. The law of God. They could lend money to their brethren, but not with interest. They could take in their brother as a hired servant, but not as a slave. They were going beyond the law of God. They were sinning, outright sinning and exploiting these people. And Nehemiah says, listen, what you're doing is not right. And it wasn't Nehemiah's opinion. He says, listen, God's word, right? The law of God is what he's basing his his authority here upon. And notice number six. We need to change our behavior or call upon others to do so. You know, if we're in the wrong, we need to repent and change our behavior. If they're in the wrong, we need to address that. Look at what he does there in verse number 10. I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Stop it. Stop doing it. So we need to call upon a change for behavior. And then verse 11, we need to make restitution or call upon others to do so. Look at verse 11. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and a hundredth of the money and the grain and new wine and the oil that you have charged them. He says it's not enough to say, we're sorry, we won't do it again. He says, give it back to them. Make restitution. God calls upon us to make restitution. If we've wronged someone, if we've stolen, if we've done those sorts of things, we need to go and make restitution, make things right. And then I want you to notice number eight. We need to look to our God to truly settle the issue before us. Here's what happens here in verses 12 and 13. So they said, we will restore it. Well, praise be to God. And we'll require nothing from them and we'll do as you say. But notice what Nehemiah did. Then I called the priest and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. He says, okay, sign the dotted lines, fellas. I believe you praise God, but sign your name right there. He makes it official. He And he also goes to verse 13. Then I shook out the fold of my garment. So Matt's taking his garment and shaking it out like he's shaking out something. So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may all the assemblies shaken out and emptied. And all the assemblies said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Then the people did according to the promise. He says, listen, if you don't do this, I pray, I plead to God, He'll shake out everything you have. We need to call upon the Lord to truly settle the issue before us. And then we need to do this. Number nine, we need to be filled with integrity and display a servant's heart. We need to be filled with integrity. That's a word we don't 
think about much these days. We also don't see it very much. Integrity in the servant's heart. Nehemiah writing here begins talking about his own life. Look at verse number 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor. So he's in the governmentship now. He's the governor. In the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year, so 12 years of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yet, yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work and at my table. Now, notice what he's saying here. Listen, I didn't take the salary I could have taken as governor. I didn't take it. We believe, obviously, that Nehemiah, uh, possibly because of being the king's cupbearer, he was probably a very wealthy man. Notice what it says in verse number 17. At my table were 150 Jews and rulers. How would you like to feed 150 people tonight? Notice what it says. Besides those who came to us from nations around us. Not only 150, 150 plus. What did they have to eat? Look at verse 18. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also, fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days, an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. It wasn't because he couldn't receive a salary. He could have taken a salary as governor, but he realized his love of God, love of these people, they were already struggling. He says, listen, I paid my own way. Not just my way, but there's other people's way as well. And he says in verse 19, here's your tenth principle. We need to live for and seek the approval of one. That is God. We need to live for and seek the approval of one, God. Look at verse 19. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah was a man of integrity. He could pray a prayer like that. God, I've sought to honor you. I've sought to glorify you. And I pray that you would just uh, have your will accomplished in my life. Now, I want you to notice those two questions. Number one, don't answer out loud. Are you in a conflict with someone right now? Are you in a conflict with someone right now? Don't answer out loud. Don't point your finger at anybody. But just think about that for a moment. Allow God the Holy Spirit to bring anyone to mind that you're in a conflict with. Now, number two, here's the question. Will you seek with God's help to settle this issue as soon as possible? Will you seek with God's help to settle this issue as soon as possible? Will you try to make it right? Is there any guarantee when you try to make things right that it's going to turn out right? No. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men, right? Let's close with these guidelines to preserving peace. Listen, I want us as a family of God at Red Hill, and even our own personal lives, to to live in peace and harmony. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, There are some good things, some good guidelines to help us preserve the peace. Would you read them with me? They're printed there on your page. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. First of all, we need to be truthful with one another. We need to speak the truth and quit lying. Look at the next part, verse 26. Be angry. Now, don't stop and take this your life verse. Okay? The very first part of the verse. What's your life verse, brother? My, my life verse is Ephesians 4, 26, the first part. Be angry. I think people took that as a life verse. But anyway, be angry and what? And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath. Listen, if you've got a problem with a brother or sister in Christ, settle it as soon as possible. Nor give place to whom? The devil. He'd love to stick his foot in right there. 
Let him who stole steal no longer. Listen, if you're a thief, stop it. Repent and restore what you've stolen. Rather, let him do what? Labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. In other words, don't just say, well, I'm going to make enough for me. Go a further step. Listen, I'm going to work now, make for me, and also extra to give to somebody else. Here's a helpful one, verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Listen, something might be true, but not need, it doesn't need to be said. Some things can be very hurtful and harmful, right? It doesn't build up my brother or sister. I'm not talking about simple things. I'm talking about just something that we might want to say that would not build up the body. It says there what? Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, they may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31. Watch this. The Kenyan church needed this one, didn't they? Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And not only did the Kenyan People need it. We need it. We need to do the same thing. Now, let me give you this in closing. Here's how you deal with a personal offense. This is the Lord Jesus here in Matthew 18. Didn't I put those in your sheet as well? Matthew 18, 15 through 17. I want you to notice what you're to do. Say, preacher, I've got a problem with somebody. I've got a problem with brother and sister. What do I do? Look at Matthew 18. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Wait a minute. What's that word? Alone. If he hears you, You've gained your brother. Okay, what if he doesn't hear you? Look at verse 16. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. You take other brothers and sisters with you, uh, there one or two more, and you try to get that thing solved. Then look at verse number 17. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. <gasps> tell it to the church. What is this about? It's church discipline. He refuses even to hear the church. Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, let me ask you a question. Don't answer out loud, but the purpose behind church discipline is not to drive people away from the church. It's not to run people away. The purpose of church discipline when you bring it for the church is to have people repent and get back in fellowship with the brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, Nehemiah chapter 5 that happened so long ago, but it hits a smack right between the eyes where we live tonight, doesn't it? We have conflicts. We have problems. We have the problem of selfishness. We see how devastating it can be. Well, believe it or not, it's time to pray and go. And I appreciate you uh, coming tonight. We're going to uh, tackle, hopefully, verse uh, chapter 6 next week if you want to be reading ahead. We'll keep on with Nehemiah. And uh, let's pray at this time. Father... We love you and praise you and thank you for this time in your house and in your word. Uh, thank you for Nehemiah chapter 5. Help us, Lord, to honor you in all things. Uh, help us to be obedient to your word. Help us to uh, seek to live in peace and harmony and to live a Christ-like life. And, Lord, if there's conflicts that arise, help us to deal with them biblically and help us to uh, restore the fellowship once again. Dismiss us in my care and thy love. Thank you for all of our folks that have been here tonight. I uh, just get much glory and honor. Bless the choirs. They begin to prepare. I hear in a few minutes. Be with them. Bless their ministry. Bless each one driving home later. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We love you.